My name is Steve Haggerty, and I've written a book called Norman Rockwell's Models. My name is Denise Van Buren, and I have the honor and privilege of currently serving as the president of the Beacon Historical Society in Beacon, beautiful Beacon, on the banks of the Hudson River down in Dutchess County. Hi, I'm Kate Fagan. I used to be a reporter at ESPN and the Philadelphia Inquirer, and also have written a number of books, including my fourth book, which is called Hoop Muses, an Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game. And it's about the history of women's basketball, illustrated by a really dynamic illustrator and curated by Simona Dustis, who has won Olympic gold medals and WNBA championships and is one of the icons of the game. My name is Charles Evans, and I'm the author of Helicopter Heroin, uh, the story of Valerie Andre surgeon, rescue pilot, and her courage under fire. My name is Alan Mattis. I'm the author of The Prestons of East Street, a story about a 19th century American family. Here's Maria Ricky O'Brice. I am so proud of the way that I faced my own fears about the end of life and began to think about what it is, what could be on the other side. Hello, my name is Patrick Chasen. I am a writer, a historian, and retired U.S. Army officer. I live in Scotia, New York. This is the second Highlights Edition for Historians Podcast in 2023, featuring excerpts from seven podcasts that can be found in our archive on bobcutmore.com. We'll begin with Steve Haggerty, who is author of Norman Rockwell's Models, in and out of the studio. In 1940, famed illustrator Norman Rockwell, his wife Mary, and their three sons moved to West Arlington, Vermont. The artist discovered a treasure trove of models. Haggerty's book details these models' lives, friendships with the artist, and experiences in his studio. Okay, so the difference in my research, the difference between fine art and illustration is that illustration is accompanied by text. It's accompanied by a story, whereas fine art is not. My name is Steve Haggerty, and I've written a book called Norman Rockwell's Models, In and Out of the Studio. I spent entire summers in West Arlington, Vermont, as a child. We still have our family place there. And my father was a freelance musician, so we spent full summers in Vermont, all 10 weeks when school was out. I wound up starting as a child working among Norman Rockwell's models. Started pitching in when I was young, haying and uh, working in a cow barn and, and so forth, right in the center of West Arlington, and swam under the red-covered bridge on the Village Green uh, with Norman Rockwell's house in the background. And many of his models joined us, and I would say there was only a few people, a few hundred people in the town, so I got to know them well. We have models reunions there. The Rockwell models come and get a big crowd, and they tell their stories. There's lots of fun and humor. And a man named Don Tracty, who organizes those reunions, he thought it would be a good idea for me to write a book after he read my first book, Cows in the Fog, and other poems and stories. Up next is an excerpt from a podcast about the history of Beacon, New York, near New York City. 
For example, one of the things that surprises people to know is that we were the good luck charm for our neighbor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He had a friend here who published the local newspaper. He used to come down to this one famous intersection in Beacon. He liked to launch his uh, campaigns there because he said he never lost a race when he started his campaign in Beacon, New York. My name is Denise Van Buren, and I have the honor and privilege of currently serving as the president of the Beacon Historical Society in Beacon, beautiful Beacon, on the banks of the Hudson River down in Dutchess County. And it's really a delight for me to have an opportunity to tell you about the history of our community. It's so important that we preserve the stories of this small city on the Hudson because it is changing so much. We're going through one of our greatest chapters of change ever since Well, frankly, September 11th and the creation of a modern art museum in our community, but certainly during the pandemic, we had a huge interest in growth. And so we're seeing a lot of folks pushing up from the greater metro area. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining us is Denise Doring Van Buren, who's president of the Beacon New York Historical Society, author of two books, editor of a third book about Beacon's history. You've already mentioned a couple of things I hadn't really considered. Up, We are based in Upper State, New York, uh, depending on how you look at it, in the Albany, New York area. And we've noticed, or one of the phenomena up here, is that since 9-11 and other issues down in uh, New York City, more people from the city are moving up here. But in Beacon is just uh, 60 miles or something like that uh, from uh, New York City. But that's been the case there, that you've had growth because people just want to kind of get out of Dodge in terms of the city? Yeah, absolutely. They want to leave the the bustle of the metropolitan area. But also, Bob, uh, it's important to note that our beautiful Hudson River Gothic Main Street has been rediscovered. It's experiencing renaissance. They're coming because they see the beauty of our built environment, but also our setting is absolutely majestic on the Hudson River. We are directly across from the city of Newburgh. We are at the northern entrance to the Hudson Highlands. Many folks are so familiar with the Highlands because West Point is there. It's just this beautiful, scenic spot in in one of the most beautiful in America, called the American Rhine, in fact. So Mm -hmm. there we sit on this beautiful area right north of the gateway to the Hudson Highlands, but in the shadow of Mount Beacon, right on the river's shoreline. Our physical setting is also just breathtaking. So it's not hard for us to understand why these new people are coming, because all of us have come, appreciate its beauty and its amenities. Now, where did the name come from? It had something to do with fire. It did indeed, yes. Thank you. Um, So prior to 1913, our area is actually two independent and vastly different villages. One is a waterfront community that is involved and engaged in all kind of shipping. That's Fishkill Landing, New York. And then further inland on the Fishkill Creek develops a manufacturing center, and that is called the village of Madiwan. Those two villages begin to grow as early as the 1700s and literally grow together. And by 1864, they're talking about consolidating them into one city. Well, they finally get around to doing that. They have formal uh, work that begins in 1910, and then they have to decide what to call our name. 
And so they first initially come up with the idea, Melzinga. That's what the Charter Commission recommends. Melzinga is an Indian word, long associated with the place. But then ultimately, in a voter referendum, the voters decide to call it Beacon in honor of the signal fires that were atop those Hudson Highlands that I mentioned earlier. One of the first acts of the Continental Congress at the uh, outbreak of the American Revolution was to establish a set of signal fires that stretched all the way from Boston to Philadelphia, that when lit in sequence would uh, um, notify the folks in Philadelphia that the British were coming, literally. And so our beacon fire is one of a string of them that extends, but it's also one of the most important. Why? Because George Washington waits out the end of the American Revolution in Newburgh, across the river from us. He spends more time there than anywhere else, and he, we have to imagine, is watching for that, that signal fire. Or have the British come back to invade the United States while negotiations are going on over in Paris? Now we learn about women's basketball from Kate Fagan, a sports writer who grew up in the Capital Region. I wanted to tell the certain stories that had never been glorified by our traditional media and the mythologizing that often happens in men's sports and even other sports. I mean, we have movies, you know, like Seabiscuit about a horse more than we actually <laughs> do about some of iconic women in, in history. And so I wanted to take those stories and inject them with life and teach people, not teach people, I think that sounds a little too um, like eating your vegetables, and just show them everywhere you looked at any moment in time since basketball was invented, there were women playing the game. Hi, I'm Kate Fagan. I used to be a reporter at ESPN and the Philadelphia Inquirer and also have written a number of books, including my fourth book, which is called Hoop Muses, An Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game. And it's about the history of women's basketball, illustrated by a really dynamic illustrator and curated by Simone Augustus, who has won Olympic gold medals and WNBA championships and is one of the icons of the game. And the book is, the book is about bringing to life the many women in history and the events in the history of the game that has that has gotten us to where we are today. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm uh, Bob Cudmore. Happy to talk with Kate Fagan, who I learn is a native of Schenectady. I mean, we're kind of close to Schenectady geographically at the headquarters of the Historian's Podcast. Her latest book is called Hoop Muses, An Insider's Guide to Pop Culture and the Women's Game, an Adventure Through Basketball History. Uh, Let me read you something that I I kind of extracted from your publicity material. Uh, Quote, to be a woman's hooper or women's hooper is to be part of a long and proud tradition, but one not often celebrated in popular culture. Hoop Muses is here to change that. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. I think as someone who played the game, I, I played at in high school, in at Niskayuna High School, actually, kind of down the road from where you are. And I played at the University of Colorado, and I played in Ireland and some, some semi-pro teams here. I thought I knew a lot about the game. You know, there were, there were women I could name from the 70s, like the Cheryl Millers of the world and Nancy Lieberman, Ann Myers. But I actually didn't quite know how we got from James Naismith inventing the game in 1992 to the 1970s women I just mentioned. And I wanted to tell the certain stories that had never been glorified by our traditional media. Now we hear from Charles Evans, author of Helicopter Heroine, 
Valerie Andre, surgeon, rescue pilot, and her courage under fire. Andre piloted helicopters to rescue wounded French soldiers in the 1950s in Indochina. She became the first woman in the French military to be promoted to general. She was commissioned as a captain. Many uh, of her fellow officers really didn't see her as an officer. Women were not treated as equals in the French military at that time. Uh, Even if you were a captain dealing with another captain, sometimes a male captain, uh, in Valerie's case, that male captain or higher-ranking officer would just be very dismissive of her. My name is Charles Evans, and I'm the author of Helicopter Heroine, the story of Valerie Andre, surgeon, rescue pilot, and her courage under fire published by Stackpole Books. The story of Valerie Andre is rather unique. She was a pioneer helicopter rescue pilot in Indochina during the French Indochina War. During her career in Indochina, she also served as a neurosurgeon at French military hospitals. But when the first helicopters were introduced for military uh, rescue in 1950, she volunteered for that service. And from 1951 to 1953, she was able to fly 128 rescue missions in the most dangerous combat areas imaginable, saving 168 lives. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Charles Morgan Evans, uniquely qualified, I would say, to uh, write about this topic. You were curator of the Hiller Aviation Museum in Northern California in the 1990s while you were working on a master's degree in history. Uh, Valerie Andre flew Hiller helicopters, right? That's correct. Uh, Stanley Hiller, I worked uh, directly for him. He was the founder of uh, Hiller Aircraft Company, one of the first companies to build helicopters in the U.S. It was kind of a unique experience for me. I was in my 20s at the time, working uh, on a master's degree at San Francisco State. The museum was located in Redwood City, about 25 miles south of San Francisco, but I lived in Redwood City at the time, so it was really convenient for me to... to, uh, have this job and uh, and it was a nerd's paradise, I guess you would. History nerd's paradise. We had forty five <laughs> aircraft stacked from floor to ceiling in this in this uh, little warehouse in Redwood City at the time. When I started working for uh, the Hiller Museum, was this the, these photos of uh, Valerie Andre? Uh, I didn't know who the woman was at the time, but she struck me as kind of interesting. So I asked Stanley Hiller to tell me the story of. Uh, this woman who uh, was uh, an early pilot of some of his helicopters. The podcast excerpts continue with Alan Mattis, author of The Prestons of E Street, the story of a 19th century American family. Well, I think the interesting thing from my point of view was how national and even world events impacted their lives. For example, William and Platt followed the encouragement in which it was originally thought to be from Horace Greeley to go west, young man, to seek their fortunes. My name is Alan Mattis. I'm the author of The Prestons of East Street, a story about a 19th century American family. This family lived in my childhood home in Galway, New York, and I always wondered what was what became of the family. There were seven children. They went out into the world, and then we basically in the village of Galloway, lost track of them. What I recall distinctly was that my parents bought the house in 1950, and it was a ruin. It was what they call now a money pit. Everything, 
on it was failing, and they spent 17 years putting it back into reasonable shape. But the other thing that was distinct in my memory was there were six bedrooms with space for more in that house, and so there was a large family that originally lived there. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're listening to Alan Mattis, who's author of The Prestons of East Street, the story of a 19th century American uh, family. But tell me more about what this house was. I mean, it seems to have been the house for, what, a kind of a a wealthy man? I mean, a a medical doctor in the 1800s was one of the pillars of the community? Yeah, it's true. Dr. Preston was a pillar of the community. He had a big practice, no question about that. The house had some evidence of refinements in terms of interior design and so forth that you would associate with wealth, although it didn't stand out particularly uh, relative to some of the larger kind of mansion-style uh, buildings in the village. But he he was um, influential. He was a signer of the document that incorporated the village and a regular churchgoer. Um, I, th- I believe he was an elder of the Presbyterian Church there. And he came from elsewhere. You said he was born... Well, the, the information that I copied now, whether this is what you want to stand by or not, that he was born in 1799 in North Gage, New York. Where is that? Near Utica, in that area. I wonder why he moved to Galway. Well, he uh, got a physician's degree at uh, Fairfield uh, College, which is near Utica, and then um, started a business in Antwerp, New York. He had a relative who was a minister who uh, spent some time in the Galloway area, and it was a growing area, so one suspects that he saw an opportunity for a a bigger business in the Galloway area, and that's why he moved there. What was the name of his wife? Uh, Margaret, first wife. First wife was Margaret, and she died, but after giving birth to the seven children? Well, that's certainly true. Um, Actually, she died in 1848, which was three years after the birth birth of the last child. The Historian's Podcast is supported by people like you. We need your donations to keep going. You may donate by linking to our GoFundMe page. You'll find the link on our website, bobcudmore.com. Or you may send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, one two three zero two you may contribute anonymously and a contribution of any size large or small is appreciated now we hear from composer maria riccio bryce creator of a new musical work called requiem what remains is love i am so proud of the way that i faced my own fears about the end of life and began to think about what it is, what could be on the other side. So the part of my ministry at St. Luke's that I'm proudest of is, in fact, what I do for funerals, which brings me to the Requiem. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. Our guest is composer, choir director, and pianist Maria Riccio Bryce from Amsterdam, New York. Maria wrote the musical Hearts of Fire, 
which deals with the Schenectady Massacre in the 1600s. Among her other major compositions are the Amsterdam Oratorio, Mother, I'm Here, and Home Again. Maria's latest work is Requiem, What Remains is Love. How did your Requiem come to be, Maria? Well, Bob, first of all, I want to say how lovely it is to speak with you. Thank you so much for, for talking with me about this. So you mentioned in your introduction that I am indeed a choir director. I have been the music director at St. Luke's Roman Catholic Church on State Street in Schenectady for 25-plus years. It's, it's kind of a well-known fact that those of us who are professional musicians often look for what's called a church gig, because, <laughs> <laughs> because you can count on it. <laughs> and so all of my life, I've, I've, had, I've, been, in, I've been at a choir loft somewhere, since, honestly, since I was age 12. So I got this job at St. Luke's in 1996. I instantly felt a connection to this place. But part of the job when you work at a Catholic church, part of the job as a musician is you must provide music for funerals. When I began at St. Luke's and I did a couple of funerals, I thought, oh, this is not for me because I was there high up in the loft and down below were strangers to me, grieving and experiencing what is, for all of us, the loss of a loved one, one of the most important moments of our lives. I just felt I didn't have the sort of courageous kind of faith to muscle on through. I just felt an empathy to a fellow human being who I didn't know, and I really flubbed the funeral. I said to my, my brand-new boss, you know, I'd love to be here at St. Luke's, but I just, I, I'll love to do the masses and the weddings, but I, I'm not going to be able to do the funerals. And very understand, understandingly, but, but absolutely forcefully, he said, well, then I, you can't be employed because it's part of the ministry. I muscled down, and gradually I found my way. And that long story is this, the whole point of what I'm trying to tell you. I am so proud of the way that I faced my own fears about the end of life and began to think about what it is, what could be on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so the part of my ministry at St. Luke's that I'm proudest of is, in fact, what I do for funerals, which brings me to the Requiem. You know, we're all getting up there in age. You can't help but begin to ask more pithy questions of the world itself and of your own heart and mind. And I have witnessed so much at St. Luke's beyond just living my life as a human being mm. that I felt the combination of my own questioning about faith, spirituality, the, the life of the soul, and my musicianship, I felt called to write a requiem. Our last podcast excerpt features Patrick Chasen, a retired 26-year U.S. Army and National Guard lieutenant colonel, now an author-historian living in Scotia, New York. He, in particular, researches military history. It took some time for our pilots and our, our leaders to figure out how to fight against the Zero. So there were some struggles between the P-40 
which was very heavy, against trying to fight this very nimble, lightweight Japanese fighter. They made almost, I want to say, over 15,000 P-40 Warhawks in Buffalo during World War II. And one of the things that I thought was interesting as I was studying was that there were 45,000 workers in the Curtis factories. 45,000 people worked there. And during World War II, 75% of those workers were women. Hello, my name is Patrick Chasen. I am a writer, a historian, and retired U.S. Army officer. I live in Scotia, New York. And for the past 11 years or so, I've been kind of digging into a few interests of mine, which include travel, military history, local history here in the Schenectady, Scotia, Saratoga, Albany region. Patrick Chasen has created a multimedia presentation called Wings of Victory, aircraft production in New York State during World War II. He uh, made the presentation uh, at a gathering of the ESAM, the Empire State Aerosciences Museum, to examine New York State's role in building warplanes for the Second World War. What I have at the top of my head about that is I didn't realize, but I guess it makes logical sense, that Long Island was sort of a center for this, wasn't it? Oh, very much so. And in the presentation, uh, we trace the foundations, if you will, of the uh, New York aviation manufacturing um, business, primarily started by a, uh, a gentleman named Glenn Curtis. Curtis started in Hammondsport, New York, which was uh, in the Finger Lakes, but uh, mm-hmm. developed two specific types of aircraft manufacture. One was land planes, those who took off and landed on the ground. That started in Buffalo, but he also saw a market for float planes, uh, seaplanes, um, and he saw Long Island as a place to develop that industry, and that's really where it started. Once you got your start on Long Island, there were other companies that came there in Glenn Curtis's footsteps, such as Grumman mm-hmm. and Republic. Heard an anecdote, as you might expect, there's people who do podcasts all over the place, and they there's one that's done specifically about Long Island, and it, it quoted a man who was, got involved in a building aircraft during World War II, and one of the things that sold him on aviation is he watched Lindbergh fly over Long Island on his way to Paris. Yes, he did. Uh, there were several uh, milestones in aviation history that started on Long Island. Lindbergh is the one that is most well-known. The Historian's Podcast started back in 2014. We've been uh, doing this weekly podcast for almost uh, 10 years, or will be 10 years after a while, and this year, 2023, we're going to reach our 500th episode. We're in it for the long haul. Uh, Dave Green and I have been working on the uh, podcast all this time, and you can hear it by listening and downloading on our website, which is bobcudmore.com. The podcast also available on SoundCloud. Search for Bob Cudmore, New York Almanac, and also Google, Odyssey, and Apple iTunes. And we have radio coverage. 
You can hear the podcast on Saturdays at noon on WCSS in Amsterdam, New York, 1490 AM, 106.9 FM, following the noon news on Saturday. We're carried on public radio, RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind. Uh, The broadcasts there uh, take place early in the week. And also a station in Binghamton, New York, affiliated with a museum there, WBDY 99.5. Please contribute to the 2023 Historians Podcast Fund Drive. You may donate online, uh, and you find out where you donate online by uh, going to our website, bobcudmore.com, and then find the GoFundMe link, click to that, and you'll be able to donate through GoFundMe. Hope you can do that, maybe even today. Or you can write out a check made out to Bob Cudmore and send it to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thanks for listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.